0: So, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 33, let's just jump right into it. Paul goes on and he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomsoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, as you can see, there are some passages in here that make you go, what's it saying? What does he mean? That sounds a certain way. And what we're going to do tonight is begin our study on this whole topic of election. We're going to go into it very specifically next week, but we're going to begin to break this down tonight. Because if you understand what Paul is doing here in his break from chapter 8 to chapter 9, and what he's going to be doing in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it will begin to make a whole lot more sense. And as you know, my desire is to teach you not just what this one section of Scripture says, but how the whole of Scripture explains itself. God wrote the whole book. And when you put the whole book together, you'll be able to better interpret and understand what this one section is talking about. So, as Paul has just had his glorious climax... Of praise of God for his love for the church. You remember chapter 8? We dealt with when we last time together six, six weeks ago. Chapter 8, and how nothing can separate us from the love of God. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also give us all things? And he just praised God for what he's done and his love for the church. Paul's brain or his thoughts naturally go to his own people, the nation of Israel. And his brain starts to deal with this question, what about all of God's promises to Israel? The Old Testament is full of literally hundreds of prophecies and promises that God is going to fulfill in the nation of Israel. So if God is now saving Gentiles, and Gentiles are just grafted in, as we're going to be looking at in our study of chapters 9, 10, and 11, what about God's promises to Israel? Now, Paul's going to answer that in the next three chapters. Chapters, But Paul will get to the conclusion at the end of chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God is not done with Israel as a nation. And all the promises to Israel will be accomplished in the end. But God is saving Gentiles right now to make Israel jealous. So, again, as we begin to break this down, you'll see this even more clearly. But Paul's thoughts are, but what about all those promises to Israel? And his answer, as you're going to see, go over to chapter 11, is that right now god is using the church the gentiles predominantly being making up the church church is made up of jew and gentiles you'll see later tonight but he's using the saving of the gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness but actually grew up not even knowing about god and god opening his their eyes and drawing them to him and them responding in faith and him just giving them righteousness he's using them to make israel jealous and in the end All of God's promises for Israel will be fulfilled. Look at chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. Paul is dealing, and we'll get to that when we break it down in more detail in chapter 11. But in chapter 11, verse 11, he's dealing with the question, so has God done with Israel? So he says, I asked, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel Jealous. Now, we're going to come back and read the rest of this section. Put a finger there in Romans 11. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we're just going to read one verse in verse 21. But if you want to go back later on and just read all of chapter 32, God lays out for the nation of Israel their whole history from their beginning all the way to his return. And he just pretty much tells them ahead of time Here's how it's all going to play out. But he says this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They, meaning the Jews, have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. The mindset of the Jews was that the Gentiles were nobody. They honestly wrestled some of the, the devout Jews with why God even made the Gentiles. And they came up with two conclusions. One. Somebody's got to go to hell. Seriously. And the other reason was, well, we need slaves. And so they just did not consider the Gentiles a people. And God told them way back at the beginning, while they were going into the land, he said, you're going to go after gods that aren't gods and make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and make you jealous. Now back to Romans 11, verse 11 again. So Paul says, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 21. He then goes on and says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. By the way, as a quick little commercial for next week, if God's word teaches that God's already predetermined who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and man has no say, why would Paul try to make some people jealous? If Paul was teaching that God had already predetermined and man has no part in it, he would not have tried to persuade some, as it says in other translations. There's a whole depth to where we're going to go next week where I'm going to show you that if someone saved, God did it. But man has a responsibility and man has a choice. Go ahead. Why would Jesus even go to the cross if it was all predetermined? If it was all predetermined, exactly. And, And we'll deal with some more of that stuff next week, but hold some of that stuff. We will deal with it from Genesis to Revelation. What does the Bible actually say about election and God saving people? We'll deal with that next week. It's a big topic, and I hope you are willing to say, wow, I still don't understand it. All right. Look at Romans 11, 25 through 32. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's all Israel that survives the tribulation period. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. All right, so to catch you up with where we're at, Paul's question is, what about God's promises to Israel? And his conclusion is, at the end of the three chapters we're going to get to, 9, 10, and 11, is that God's not done with Israel. All the promises of Israel are going to be fulfilled, but right now, He's doing something in this church age saving gentiles to make Israel jealous and when that time has come to an end he will finish all of his plans and promises for the nation of Israel again one of the many scriptural evidences of the fact that the church is going to be taken away when he and before he finishes what he's going to do with Israel but in order to get to chapters 9 10 and 11 fully Paul first lays out the scriptural depth of God's sovereignty to do things however he wishes and at the same time shows that God's sovereignty doesn't remove man's free will. He's going to start laying this all out. You're going to see this. I'm going to say it to you again. In order to get to that final conclusion at the end of chapter 11, Paul shows that God is so sovereign, he gets to do this however he wants. This is his world. This is his show. How many of you had a say and whether or not you'd be born? Yet we come into this world wanting to be in charge and to say how things ought to be. We even try to tell God how to do things. Well, if I were God, I wouldn't. Oh, we have to be careful. But yet at the same time, as Paul lays out the sovereignty of God to do things however he wishes, he never teaches that man doesn't have a responsibility. They're both here in this section of chapter 9 and in the whole of Scripture. So Paul starts off this next, sep- this next section of Romans by telling the Roman church of his deep love and concern for his own people, the Jews. Go back to chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Don't miss how Paul starts off this section. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience even bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that what I'm about to tell you is the truth. It's going to sound crazy, and you're probably not going to believe me. But I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit is confirming it in my heart. What I'm about to tell you is it's the truth, just like Jesus is the truth. And he said this. He said, if I could go to hell and that would cause the nation of Israel to be saved, I'd do it. Think about that for a minute. Would you be willing to go to hell for eternity for a family member or for a nation? By the way, that's what Jesus did. He suffered for us, did he not? He experienced separation from the Father, so we wouldn't have to go to hell. But Paul says, that's how much I want my nation of Israel, my people, to be saved. It deeply hurt Paul that just as we have been given eternal security in Christ, many of his own people were heading for eternal judgment because of their rejection of Jesus. I hope you still have a concern and a passion for those who are rejecting Jesus. I hope your attitude isn't while they're getting what they deserve. No, 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 listen closely. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, while he was being stoned, said the same thing. Don't hold this against them. When you start finding yourself thinking, boy, I hope they get it. When you look at the world, you've fallen away from Christ. You haven't lost your salvation, but his heart is not bleeding through you. We need to understand that Jesus, the reason he hadn't come and got us yet, Is because he's not wanting anyone to perish. Paul felt it so strongly, though, that he would even consider going to hell himself if that would cause Israel to be saved. And in his anguish, Paul points out how much the Jews had revealed to them. Number one, in this section we just read, they're the chosen people. God chose Abraham. You can see that later on tonight. They were adopted by God. I'm not going to have you turn there because we got a lot to cover tonight. But if you write down in your notes, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, Hosea 11, 1 through 4, God lays out that even though they were rebellious, God loved the nation of Israel. He cared for them. He provided for them. He watched over them. And they still rejected him, but he cared for them. He adopted them. He treated them like sons. They even saw God's Shekinah glory. Remember how God revealed his presence in the tabernacle and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and He would would show his glory. They've seen his glory. God made many covenants with them. He gave them his law from Mount Sinai. They were given rites and worship of God in the temple. And God made so many promises to them, the greatest one being that the Messiah would come through them, the one who would bless the world. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. This is when God is and a lot of people don't realize this, in chapter 12, God's kind of reminding Abram or Abram at this time of his call. In Genesis chapter 12, verse one, it says, "Now the Lord I wrote in my Bible had said to Abram, because where it's happening at this point, he's already called him out of the of the Chaldeans, but he had kind of stopped for a little while. And he has stopped following God. But at this point, the God had said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And look at what God says to Abraham. Abraham at the time, he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in whom him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Folks, this is a picture of God's promise to bring the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world, through the nation of Israel. They also had the patriarchs. Do you all know who the patriarchs are? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very good. Go back to Romans 11. We already read about this. Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 28 and 29. He then goes and says, as regards the gospel, the Jews right now are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, those promises God made, he's going to keep them. Well, that's good news for you and me, isn't it? Because has any he promised to never leave you nor forsake you? So his gifts and his call are irrevocable. You can't lose it if you got it. If you lost it, you never had it, because once he seals you, you're his. And he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have not yet been fulfilled. You can see that later on if you would do a study of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and also around the end of the chapter 32 and following. These died not having received what was promised. The promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still yet to be fulfilled. And Paul will explain that later on in our study when we get to chapter 11. And then the last thing that he points out here in chapters 9, verses 1 through 11, one through 5, is this. As we have already pointed to Jesus, who was and is God himself, but in his flesh, he was who? He was a Jew. So if you go back and look at Romans 9, 1 through 5, I'm not going to read it again, but all of those nine things Paul lays out, all of the ways that the nation of Israel had light revealed to them. By the way, if they had this much light revealed to them, how much higher accountability are they going to have as well? And you wonder why the nation of Israel has had it so hard over the years. We'll be judged in a measure of how much he's he's revealed to us. So let's jump over to Romans 9 now, verses 6 through 9. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now. Paul asked this question, did God's promises to Israel fail since the Jews rejected their Messiah? No. And the actually the answer to this is twofold. The answer is no. But there's two levels to it. And this is actually one of the places where some people who try to teach that the church has not replaced Israel, they'll try and take this passage and say, well, not all who are actually born as Jews are actually of, of, uh, of Israel, but you can just be a person of faith and that now is the new Israel. No, no, no. We get to be a part of Israel by faith, but we don't replace them. Remember all the promises to the patriarchs? He's going to finish what he started. Go back to John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. In John 1, verse 10, it just said that the true light, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. And he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the Bible is very clear that you actually get to be, and I'm going to show you this in just a second, you get to be a part of the nation of Israel and God's promises for Israel by faith in Jesus Christ. He came to his own people, the Jews, and they didn't receive him. But all who did receive him by believing in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. All right, now, this is where Paul's teaching begins to get deep. The answer to the question of the effectiveness or truth of God's word in his promises to Israel has many levels. One, no, God's word and promises to Israel have not failed because God's Israel is made up of more than just physical descendants of Israel. Keep that in mind. When God talks about Israel, it's more than just the national Israel. When we get to chapter 11, you'll see it a lot more clearly. We've been grafted in. But we have not replaced Israel or the nation of Israel. We've just been grafted in. So you actually get to be a part of Israel. And all the promises for Israel will be ours as well. We're going to get to celebrate in them receiving the land when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth and they get all the promises of the land and it's going to be from here to this border and from that border to that border and all these things and David is going to rule and reign with Jesus on the earth and all the things that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the nation of Israel, they're going to be fulfilled one day and we get to be a part of it. That's why when you see for eternity in Revelation chapter 21 the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in the eternal state You get the gates and the foundations are made up of not only the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the apostles in the church. It's going to be a mixture of all of us. So has God's promise to Israel failed? No, because Israel's made up of more than just physical descendants of Israel. But there's another layer. It has not failed because God will do for national Israel all that he has promised when he is done with what he's doing in this time of the Gentiles. Go back to Romans 11 again and look at verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 6. He says, "I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel?" Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Jump over to chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, as the Jews. And you, although a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't think you've replaced them. Don't think God's now doing something through the church and he's done with Israel like a lot of churches teach today. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, well, branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That's true they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith so don't become proud but fear for if god didn't spare the natural branches neither will he spare you note then the kindness and the severity of god severity toward those who have fallen but god's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off and even if they if they do not continue in their unbelief will and even sorry and even they if they do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off by what is nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So, has God's promises to Israel failed? No. Because the church actually is a part of Israel, and so his promises to Israel are being fulfilled in us right now, yet He's also not done with national Israel. And when he's done with the church age, he will finish all the things he said he would do in national Israel. That's why he then goes on in the very next verses, 25 and following, that we've already read. I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. the church age is over. And then he's going to take them, us, and he's going to come and finish what he promised and what he promised said he would do with the nation of Israel. And all Israel that survives the tribulation period that's going to happen after the church is gone, all of Israel that survives that will be saved. That's why the prophecies say at that point you won't need any preachers saying know the Lord because all the Jews will know the Lord. They'll all be saved, just like the scripture said. So when explaining that God's promises for Israel are available to everyone, Paul shows how all along salvation has been offered to anyone who has faith in God's promise, his promised 1. Go back to Romans chapter 4. We've seen this before, but maybe we need to be reminded. Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. Paul's been laying this deep theology out through the whole book. He says, For the promise, Romans 4, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. We read that earlier. And in the presence of God of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed, against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in, the, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. who raised Jesus from, from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so he's been laying out, look, if you could get saved by being good, what's the point of the promise? That's something you earn. But the promise has always been, I will provide a child for you. I will, Sarah, this time next year, I will arrive and you'll have a child. This one that I'm going to, give you Abraham and Sarah this miraculous Isaac. It's going to be through him that the promised one that is still yet to come is going to come. And Abraham believed God so much so that when God comes to him later on and says, I want you to kill him now, Abraham believed that God was going to raise him from the dead because God had said it was through him that this Messiah was going to come, the promised offspring. Isaac wasn't the promised offspring in Abraham's mind. It was the one that was going to come through Isaac. And if God said it was going to come through Isaac and I kill him, he's going to have to raise him back from the dead because he said it was going to be through Isaac and Isaac has to live until he makes a baby. And he believed God and God gave him righteousness. And everyone who believes in God's promise of a provision for their sin through the one he has predetermined before the foundation of the world, you're going to see tonight, Everyone who puts faith in the one God has chosen will be given righteousness. It's always been by faith. Listen closely. That's how he's predetermined it from the beginning. Election, as you'll see next week, has a lot less to do with who and a lot more to do with how God has predetermined salvation to be. And he gets to say how he wants. By the way, I know you know this already. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, correct? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, correct? So would we not agree that God has already said there's only one way to be saved? But what about all these people who think, well, what about this way and what about that way? No, oh, we, we maybe seem narrow-minded, but we have put all of our faith in what God has said. There's only one way to be saved, and that was predetermined before the foundation of the world. And it's always been by faith in God's provision. And that's how he did it. And that's the only way it's going to be. And it's not by effort. It's not by works. It's not by how good you are. It's simply by faith. And as you're going to see next week, you couldn't even get to that point of faith without him drawing you. But does he draw everyone? The answer is yes. But we're going to show you more about that next week. Go to Romans. Actually, Go to to Genesis chapter 3. We'll go to Genesis 3, and then we'll go to 1 Peter 1 real quick. Then we'll go to the next section of Romans. Genesis 3. Look at verse 15. Adam and Eve have just broken God's command and eaten from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Their eyes are opened. Their relationship with God has now been broken. They're afraid of him. And he says to Satan... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right after the first sin was committed, God says to Satan, oh by the way, this plan's been in motion before you even created. I'm actually going to have a seed of this woman a descendant of this woman, destroy you. Oh, you're going to do damage to him. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. By the way, did Satan know who that seed of the woman was at this point? No. So she gives birth to two boys, Abel and Cain. And one was a man of faith, one wasn't. And God was pleased with Abel, not pleased with Cain. And so what does Satan think? This is going to be the one that he promised. And he has him killed. And you'll see this battle going back and forth all through history until the prophecies start coming in the Scripture through the prophets. Oh, he's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be actually God himself. By this point, Satan knows exactly who it is. And he starts to try to mess up the gene pool. He starts to try to mess up all sorts of other stuff to try to stop this. And he even tries, in his mind, putting him death when he shows up on the scene, Jesus, but it all falls right into God's plan, his predetermined plan of election. He's chosen how to be saved. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 18 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 But when when was he planned? Before the foundation of the world. Oh, he was revealed in these last days for our sake. But he'd been planned all along. As we saw in the book of Romans, so that God's purposes of election might stand, he's determined how and who and when. And that how and who and when is through Jesus Christ alone. And when? By faith alone. When he opens your eyes, you have the opportunity to respond, you better respond. Because he also, as you're going to see later on, determines when your opportunity is over. He gets to do it however he wants. Now in verse chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. And not only so, but when, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Did you catch that? His purpose of election began before the foundation of the world, but that it might continue, not because of works or our effort, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What what, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Now, we're going to stop right there and dealing with, deal with this. In choosing beforehand who his Messiah would come through, he was showing that God does not choose according to how a person performs. In other words, he had already chosen that the Messiah would come through Jacob or Esau? Jacob. He would already planned ahead of time that he was going to come through Jacob. Now, had Esau done anything to make God say, "Ah, oh, you blew it, I'm not going to choose you? No. And why did he choose Jacob instead of Esau? Listen, Paul's saying to show that God has predetermined ahead of time how he's going to work his salvation, and it has nothing to do with what you do. It's all done by him, his plan, his purpose. That's why if you go back to the story of Gideon, when God takes Gideon and his 300 men, he narrows them down to 300, and he says to them, look, let them go drink of the water. And the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. The ones who drink in the other way aren't the ones I've chosen. Now, did every three of men of the 300 have a choice how they would drink? Yes, but God had predetermined ahead of time how they were to drink in order to be chosen. By the way, isn't that what the Bible says? Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. He would predetermined that there's only one way to be saved, and that's to drink of Jesus Christ by faith. You can drink in other ways, but the way that God has elected to save and chose has nothing to do with us, has everything to do with his plan. He's predetermined that we drink of Jesus and only of Jesus, and if you don't drink of Jesus, you're not chosen. Those are the ones. Many are called. But the chosen are those who respond in faith to God's predetermined plan of salvation. And do it the way he said. And to show that it's all by him and his plan, he chose ahead of time before Jacob and Esau, both twins, before they were even born, he chose, it was gonna, the Messiah was going to come through Jacob to show that it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. Do you understand? Now, Paul then shows how God will have mercy on who he'll have mercy, and he'll harden whom he will harden. And he uses Pharaoh as an example. Now, if you go and I wanted to do this, but I knew it would take too much time, but I can tell you to go do it. It's fun study. Go back and look at the story of Moses and, and, and Pharaoh. And you're going to look at that whole story of all the plagues. At the very beginning, God tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But at the beginning of the encounter with Moses and Pharaoh, the scripture clearly says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And as you read, I could take you through it. I've marked my Bible all up. Go do it yourself and mark with one color the Pharaoh's hardening it. And then there comes a point where God says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. You're even going to see God give Pharaoh one more opportunity after he hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardens his own heart one more time. And from that point on in the story, every other one says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let him go. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let him go. God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because I already see everything and I know how it's all going to play out. And I'm going to harden his heart. But did Pharaoh have a choice? Yes, he did. But God, knowing he would harden his heart, used him as an example. And then there came a point where after having his opportunity to respond appropriately, God says, now you don't even have a choice. And let me say something to you folks. We've got to be willing to let God be God and every man a liar. And who are we as the clay to say to the molder, Why'd you do it this way? He has predetermined that He will give you, and He chooses everyone gets it a different measure. There's an, a point where He says to each of us, and He determines how much light each of us give uh, or get. He says, There comes a point where I say, Okay, I'm done. You've had your opportunity. Now I won't let you be saved and he'll harden whoever he'll harden and he'll have mercy and whoever have mercy. If we're faithful to the scriptures and we try to be here, Jesus stood and said over Capernaum, it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum because they receive more light. Listen to what Jesus says next. He says, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the miracles that I did in Capernaum, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. We then in our human flesh say, well, God, why don't you do that then? And because he says that wasn't my plan, they had enough light to respond. And there came a point where I shut the door for them. And the day of judgment for Capernaum is going to be even harder because they had more light revealed to them. And he gets to do it however he wants. Folks, you're going to see this next week. But in God being sovereign over salvation, and it's his plan and his way, and man having a responsibility, it's not equal. It's not. How many of you, show your hands, had a blinding light and an audible voice knock you off your horse like Paul? Me neither. But you had enough to be saved or you wouldn't be here. And to him be the glory. He gets to do it however he wants. And when he decides the door is shut, he decides the door is shut. Did you catch what we read earlier? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's right now drawing more Gentiles, giving more light to Gentiles than the Jews. Are they receiving enough to be saved? Yes, they are, but it's less. Is that fair? Are you God? Remember, this is all his plan. This is all his thing. and We want to be in charge of what we think it all should be. That's why we try to jump to one side or another. I'm going to show you next week that it's all there. God does the saving. It's his plan, his way. Man has a responsibility. But don't think that everybody's going to get the same amount. You better respond while he opens your eyes. Go to John chapter 12. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart to show that he will do that whenever he chooses. John chapter 12. Look at verses 37 through 40. John chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Sorry, I, I wrote down the wrong section. It's right over here. Oh, no, actually, I did write the right section. I'm just reading out of Luke instead of John. Yes. I was say. That, didn't make, that didn't make sense. John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Did you catch that? Even though he had done so many signs before them, they still had a responsibility, and they didn't choose. They still didn't believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, because they saw and did not believe, they could not believe. For again, in another place, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Did you catch that? They had the opportunity to respond. He opened their eyes. Lord, they've heard from us. He's had the arm of the Lord revealed. But because they wouldn't, he then said, their time is up. Folks, you want to talk about their time is up. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, which is a picture of not only there was a literal church, but also a picture of the last days of the church age. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, who was he writing to? The church. Those who claim to be believers in Jesus. I'm about to spit you out. When I take my bride and I leave you behind, you will find out you never were. That's why Revelation chapter tw- uh, 3, verse 20, the famous verse, we've all seen the picture of Jesus knocking at that door. Remember how there's no handle on the outside? It has to be opened from the inside. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. By the way, that was written to the church in the last days. There are many, like Judas, who never were. And when he decides the time is up and he takes his bride, many will be left behind. Who thought they were okay. We're not going to go and look at it, but you all know Romans 1, 18 through 25, where God, even though he revealed himself through creation and his law, men reject it, and then he just gives them over to their shameful lusts. In Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 33, Paul ends this chapter by saying that God gets to accomplish his salvation however he wants. Look at verses 19 through 33 in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, of which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, which was how God had determined ahead of time before the foundation of the world that it would be. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him Will not be put to shame. Folks, listen closely to what Paul says here. He says, God gets to do his salvation however he wants. But at the same time, the people that miss it miss it not because God didn't give them a chance, but because they didn't respond in what? In faith. The Jews had a lot revealed to them. The law, the prophets, the Shekinah glory the covenants, the worship rites, the sacrificial system, even the Messiah being born through their nation. Yet they tried to determine how they think man should get to God. And they took the things that God said and picked the things they liked and dropped off the things they didn't and made their own religion that you could earn it by being good enough. And God said that never was the plan. And if you were to take the time, I so wish I was on that road to Emmaus with those two men. As Jesus explained from all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He had a 11, seven, 11 mile walk there. I don't remember exactly how many miles it was, but it was at least seven, no more than eleven. I forget now how many it is. Yes, I do forget things. And uh, in that long walk, Jesus explained to them from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I can guarantee you, he took them back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15 and began from there. The seed of the woman is going to defeat Satan because of sin. Oh, he was planned before the foundation of the world. And then little by little, God over time begins to give another little piece, another little piece. And he's going to come from the nation of Israel through you, Abraham. All the peoples, all the families on the earth will be blessed. He's going to come through this nation that I'm going to create through you. Oh, and I know you just tried to help me and go make this guy Ishmael, but it's not through him. It's through the one that's going to come next year at this time, through Sarah. Oh, I'm going to ask you to kill him now. But God, you said, just trust me. And in Abraham walking in obedience to kill the promised one that the Messiah was going to come through, what does God do? He provides on that exact same mountain where Jesus was later going to be crucified, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. I don't know if y'all ever caught that or not. The sacrifice instead of Isaac was a lamb with a crown of thorns. Oh, I could go on and on and show you how he's going to come from the nation of Israel. But not only Israel, he's going to come through the tribe of Judah and be a descendant of David. And Isaiah said he's not only going to be from David, though he's going to have the spirit of God upon him, the seven spirits of God. And. Isaiah 9, 6 says he's going to be wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And Isaiah 53 then goes on and gives us some more, how he's going to be bruised for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brings us peace is going to be on him. The Lord's going to lay on him the iniquity of everybody. Oh, but he's going to rise from the dead, that passage in Isaiah 53 says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see his offspring. He'll come back to life. Then Jesus comes on the scene. He says, I am that one that the scriptures have been pointing to all along. I'm the bread. I'm the manna from heaven, which was pointing to me. I'm the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist said it twice. That's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He even rode into Jerusalem on the day that the donkey was welcomed according to the law. He wrote into Jerusalem on that day that that, that, the the lamb was to be welcomed into into the house according to the Passover regulations during Passover on the 10th day. And then he was put to death at the same time. Jesus says, "If you'll believe in me. Now, listen closely. This is God's plan for salvation, and there's no other way in which anyone can be saved. Oh, the people of the world say, well, that's not fair. That's not, I think it should be this way, don't you? And you run across them. I think there's lots of ways to God. I think there should be many people who could, I think God should let everybody in. Guess what? Who are you to say? This is his world, his plan And he's actually got something even bigger in mind. We don't even have time to get into it because it's not covered in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. But let me just tell you, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 that he has planned before that not only to have salvation be through Jesus, but he's got an eternal plan about Jesus that's going to blow your minds. I mean, Paul uses words like extravagance and blessed, and it's going to be excessive what God does through Jesus and for Jesus, and we get to be a part of it for eternity. If we even saw what it would be like now, I don't think any of us could make it. But I say to you, and we're going to look at it in great detail next week. Well, I'm not kidding you. I'm going to bomb you with so many scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to deal with this topic of election. We've touched on it a little bit tonight. But all along through this section, Paul's been showing him. God's been showing you all along. I have chosen how I would be saved and who would be saved. But I don't choose In other words, I've chosen Joe's going to be saved and Bob's not going to be saved. No, I've chosen who, and the who is whoever believes in the one that I have predetermined. That's who will be saved. And every time you see the word predestined in the scripture, an aspect of salvation has predestined, not the person. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. We could twist it and say, "Well, I was predestined to be saved." No, 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 you were predestined to be saved through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine: He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That was what we're predestined. We not only that we be saved through faith alone in Jesus, but those who do would have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what He's working on right now. So I say to you, folks, take a deep breath. Let God be God, and let me give you a little commercial for next week about this whole study of election. If You walk out of here thinking, I'm going to fully understand it. I haven't done my job. Because Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I think it's verse 8, he said, the wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Listen closely. So it is everyone with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words you're never gonna figure it out. And the sooner you just relax about trying to figure it out and believe the whole of scripture, that if I do respond, it's because I didn't even look for him, he began to draw me by his mercy. And he draws everyone, but not everybody gets the same amount of drawing. And I will be held accountable for whether or not I responded to the amount of light that I got. But when we get there, there won't be a person of us that says, yeah, I had faith, no, by his grace. This was his plan all along, and he opened my eyes to it. You ever heard people say, a dead person can't respond? We were dead in our trespasses. A dead person can't respond. You ever heard that one? If you're dead, you're dead. You can't do anything. God has to do it all for you. Anybody ever heard that one? It said a lot. It said a lot, but next week, next week, make a little commercial, though. You go back and look at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, and Jesus is talking to this one church that has the appearance of being alive, but it's dead. And he tells the dead church, wake up. Wait a minute. If they were dead and they had no ability to respond, why would he tell a dead church to wake up? Because when he speaks, the dead can wake up. You can be dead in your trespasses. And he speaks. You have the ability to respond. You still got to choose whether or not you're going to. But if it was impossible for a dead person to ever respond, and God has to do it all for them, he would never have told those in that church, you're dead, wake up, repent. Much more next week. Till then, I love you. Thanks for coming.